It's almost impossible to grasp just how much of our modern political life traces back to Richard Nixon and Watergate. Almost every institution in Washington as it now exists is the direct result of the forces that were unleashed by Watergate. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Fifty years ago, a burglary took place at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C. What seemed at first like a petty crime spiraled into a conspiracy and cover-up that led to the downfall of President Richard Nixon. A half-century later, the echoes of that scandal still reverberate as Congress investigates the crimes and cover-ups of another president, Donald Trump. Vermont author Garrett Graff re-examines the scandal that would shape all others in his new book, Watergate, A New History. Graff is a journalist and historian who has spent nearly two decades covering politics, technology, and national security. He has served as editor of Politico and Washingtonian magazines, has contributed to Rolling Stone, The New York Times, CNN, and numerous other media. His previous books include the New York Times bestseller The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11, and The Threat Matrix, Inside Robert Mueller's FBI and the War on Global Terror. Graff is currently the director of cyber initiatives for the Aspen Institute. Garrett Graff, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. You were born nine years after the Watergate break-in. What interested you uh, about going back into history before you were born to take a look at this? Yeah. In my journalism career, I spent most of you know, what is now, I guess, the last five or six years covering President Trump and his own, uh, shall we say, unique use of the presidency and uh, resulting allegations of crime and abuses of power and things like that. Um, And as part of that, it got me interested in going back and looking at Nixon and Watergate um, and in some ways, how Washington worked and why Washington worked then. Because um, I think sort of one of the things that stands out about the confrontation of uh, the institutions um, that took on Donald Trump is that it didn't work. Um, you know, this is someone who was... Uh, investigated by the Justice Department, um, impeached twice, um, and never convicted, never driven from office. Um, And so I was curious, you know, what about Nixon was different? What actually happened there? Um, And and in many ways, the story, uh, as I reconstructed it and rebuilt it, is significantly different than the one that I think most Americans will remember or or feel like they know over the course of uh, the way that, you know, popular history has recorded Watergate over the years. Well, so let's go there. You write, uh, quote, the popular history version that we now tell about about Watergate, the DNC break-in, Woodward and Bernstein, Deep Throat, the Irvin Committee hearings, yada 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 nixon resigns represents just a sliver of the full story which is not only bigger but oh ever so much weirder so um that intrigues me let's uh talk about why is that just a sliver that is of course the best known parts of it and uh, let's get right to the weird part so the one of the things that i think stands out in the way that the popular history retells Watergate is that the DNC burglary was the start of something. Um, and in fact, it wasn't. It was as if America was walking into you know, the second or third act of a play, not realizing that the play had been underway for some period of time beforehand. Um, up to and including the fact, you know, most Americans, I don't think, know 
that the burglars, when they were arrested on June 17th, 1972, it was actually their second break-in of the Watergate uh, Democratic Party headquarters. Um, that what they were doing that night was trying to fix the bumbling burglary of the preceding uh, uh, burglary. Um, and, and when when was the first burglary? So the the first burglary was a couple of weeks earlier. Um, they had tried to bug uh, the DNC offices um, in in theory. And the bugs didn't appear to work. Um, and so they were sort of breaking back in uh, to try to photograph some new documents, to try to steal some new documents, perhaps. Um, and uh, according to them, fix the bugs uh, that had been misplaced and, and malfunctioned the first time. What now, documents were they looking for? What was going, what was so consequential that could help Nixon? Well, and this is actually, this is one of the very weird bits of uh, the, the Watergate story is that this burglary on which so much history turned and hinged, um, we've never actually fully understood what the burglars were trying to accomplish that night. Um, there are um, numerous different theories over the last 50 years about what was actually taking place. Um, there was some sense that they were looking for uh, finan uh, evidence of financial improprieties by the Democratic Party. Um, there's some evidence that they were actually looking for whether the Democrats had evidence of Nixon's financial improprieties. Um, and or maybe they were just trying to do some burglaring um, and, and, and bugging. Um, and it's a very, very weird and opaque situation, even 50 years later. And, you know, no one ha was ever indicted or charged uh, or arrested for the act of actually ordering the burglary in the first place. Um, it, now, part of what makes this unique in this moment is... Watergate, the burglary, um, as it morphs into Watergate, the scandal, uh, as we remember it, uh, actually is not just about the burglary. It becomes this umbrella scandal uh, that really encompasses almost a dozen other distinct Nixon administration scandals, um, of which I sort of talked through each of them in the book and talk about how they lead from one to another. Um, th this whole thing actually begins about a year before with the publication of the Pentagon Papers um, and the the plumbers, uh, the, the sort of famous group uh, uh, headed by G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt uh, actually come together in the summer of 1971 to try to discredit Daniel Ellsberg, the leaker of the Pentagon Papers, uh, and, and do a hatchet job on his public reputation. And this scandal uh, really is less of a, a, a single moment and more a corrupt and criminal, dark, paranoid mindset that permeates the upper ranks and reaches of the Nixon administration and consumes the Nixon White House from within um, over the course of 1971, 1972, 1973, and finally 1974 when Nixon resigns uh, and leaves office in August 1974. Well, let's talk about one of, just one of those scandals to sort of gain some insight. You write that the Cheno affair, is that how it's pronounced? It's pr Chenault. Chenault, okay. Uh, was perhaps one of the uh, few truly treasonous actions um, that has occurred that can be attributed to Nixon. Remind us what that affair yeah. was about. So this becomes in many ways the original spark that begets all of the dark paranoia of the rest of the administration 
uh, up to and including the Pentagon Papers and the Nixon overreaction to that um, in the spring of 1971. Um, Can I just digress for a moment since we're talking about the Pentagon Papers? Dan Ellsberg has been a guest on this show and sort of told the story in the first person. And we'll just remind listeners what that was. It was a history of U.S. involvement, the secret history of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. But most of that predates Nixon. It's about Kennedy and Johnson. Why should he care? And and that's exactly the the question. Um, Literally, the word Nixon never once appears in any of the volumes and hundreds of thousands of words of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, And at first blush, it should have been a scandal that Nixon should have fully embraced because of the way that it uh, tore down two of the people that he hated most in the world, John right. Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, one could imagine him licking his chops. Um, it, it, and in fact, he does for the first 24, 48 hours uh, of uh, the scandal as it unfolds in the pages of the New York Times. And it is only with Henry Kissinger's uh, interdiction, really, that Nixon begins to get worked up over it. And eventually they realize uh, that the uh, that the revelations about around the Pentagon Papers might lead to revelations about what uh, is called sort of colloquially um, and obtusely at, in many of these Nixon conversations as they're recorded, the, bo- the bombing halt. And the bombing halt was this moment in the fall of 1968 where Nixon was battling Hubert Humphrey, uh, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, of course, uh, for the the presidency, um, and the polls were tightening. And at the same time, uh, Lyndon Johnson was trying to bring the war in Vietnam to a close. And he... Part of what that process was halting the bombing of North Vietnam amid the peace talks uh, in Paris. And what Richard Nixon does, um, and this only comes out really decades later, sort of pieces of this trickle out um, over the years, but it really wasn't until about 10 years ago that we fully understood the scope of this. Uh, Nixon working through a woman in Washington, um, sort of a famed uh, Asian doyen in the city named Anna Chenault, uh, intercedes to tell the South Vietnamese that they should delay participating in the peace talks. Um, And that if Nixon wins, he will give the South Vietnamese better treatment than they're going to get from LBJ in the fall of 1968. And so what you actually have and what makes this sort of so horrifying is you have Nixon privately pushing for the continuation of the war in Vietnam uh, you know, the ongoing killing of American servicemen in, uh, you know, the jungles and rivers of Vietnam uh, in order to gain his own, what he sees as his own political benefit. Lyndon Johnson learns of this through some signals intelligence wiretapping that's taking place on the South Vietnamese embassy in Washington. And uh, tries to confront Nixon in the um, in, in the waning days of that '68 campaign. Nixon uh, denies any knowledge, denies any participation in it, and um, Lyndon Johnson en- ends up sort of doing what was sort of the right thing for the country, perhaps, and the wrong thing politically, and remains silent about this, even though. Um, you know, the, these allegations would have almost certainly led to the election of Hubert Humphrey rather than Richard Nixon in 68. 
And Nixon then spends his entire presidency terrified that these revelations uh, about what become known as the Chenault affair will actually come out. Um, and he believes wrongly that these are tied up in the revelations around the Pentagon Papers. And so what drives him to mad paranoia in the uh, Pentagon Papers leaks is the idea that the this uh, you know these treason allegations around the bombing halt will also come out, and he begins to he he comes to believe that they ex that there's a copy of these revelations uh, basically in a safe at the Brookings Institution in Washington, and so he spends the summer of 1971 trying to formulate a plan to break into the Brookings Institution and steal back this copy uh, of these revelations about the bombing halt um, up to this, you know, uniquely crazy and zany plot where he is trying to get people to actually firebomb the Brookings Institution in Washington in the hopes that they could, uh, once the building was on fire, they could get undercover firefighters in to raid the safe and escape <laughs> in the chaos. This and is amazing. It's amazing. And, and, you know, G. Gordon Liddy um, becomes involved in these plot, uh, these plans as part of the, um, uh, as part of the, uh, the plumber's unit. Um, and ultimately, the plan doesn't go forward, uh, not because it's highly illegal and, you know, this insane criminal plot. Um, G. Gordon Liddy says it doesn't go forward because the White House was too cheap and was unwilling to buy the fire engine necessary to carry out the plot. Um, G. Gordon Liddy and uh, E. Howard Hunt um, instead go about trying to discredit Daniel Ellsberg by breaking into his psychiatrist's office um, in, uh, in California. Um, this, again, sort of crazy illegal abuse of uh, civil liberties and, and the privacy of an American citizen. Um, and, you know, begets this whole, you know, wild, over-eager imagination uh, it, of the plumbers that a year later leads them to be breaking into the Watergate at the moment that they're arrested. And so uh, part of what I think is so wild about understanding this story start to finish is coming to realize how amazing it is that it actually none of this was uncovered until the arrests uh, in the summer of 1972 at the DNC offices in the Watergate, that in many ways... Um, it, it's amazing that these bungling burglars uh, and, and would-be criminal plotters uh, managed to escape notice and attention for as long as they did. Hmm. And it should be noted that the break-in of Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office is what ultimately results in the entire uh, case against Ellsberg, which was uh, a, um, you know, a high-level kind of treason case uh, was thrown out of court because of all the illegalities that surrounded his case. Yeah. So, it, it, and it ultimately ends up leading to, you know, the indictments of, uh, you know, White House aides like Chuck Colson um, and uh, John Ehrlichman. And so one of the wild ironies of this is that it's Nixon's own behavior uh, that allows Daniel Ellsberg to skate on what, you know, probably was a relatively open and shut leak case. That's right. Um, now, the presidential election that this is all a part of, the 1972 re-election of President Nixon, he's running against George McGovern, a very weak opponent. It results in a landslide victory of Nixon. You know, I, I uh, always like to remind people who get depressed about current politics, uh, you want to talk about depressed. Nixon, in the midst of a wildly unpopular war, wins by 18 million votes. Um, it was a historic blowout. 
So what's he so afraid of? And this is part of what I think becomes so fascinating as you go back and reconstruct and tell this story start to finish is how close in many ways Nixon came to getting away with it all. That, you know, part of the false memory that we have is that, you know, the Watergate burglary leads inexorably to Nixon's resignation um, two years later. But actually, when you go back and you look at the story uh, and the history, Nixon almost got away with it. Um, he was reelected that fall, in, as you say, with the largest landslide in American presidential history. Um, the Washington Post runs, you know, in January 1973, a 22-page inaugural section about Nixon, and the word Watergate doesn't appear once in the entire 22-page section. Um, and so Nixon, uh, Nixon's cover-up actually almost worked. Um, and, uh, you know, really as late as March 1973, it's not clear uh, that this scandal is going to be anything more than some random, weird historical trivia, you know, decades later. I also want to revisit this uh, deeply flawed character of Richard Nixon, because you remind us at the beginning of this really magisterial history of that era, what a consequential president Nixon was, perhaps one of the most consequential presidents. And you, you tick off some of his uh, accomplishments, um, not least of which he was on the Republican Party's national ticket five times. He wound down the Vietnam War before winding it up in the ways that you describe. He signed the Clean Air Act, created the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, signed the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, transformed the post office, raised Social Security payments, declared war on cancer, signed Title IX, giving women opportunities uh, in academia and sports, um, and on and on and on goes to China, the first American president, goes to Moscow, first American president. Um, it's an astonishing list, and yet history remembers him as almost a cartoon character villain. Um, talk about your insights into who Richard Nixon was. Uh, the statistic that most stands out to me uh, as you go back over his achievements Richard Nixon was on the cover of Time magazine 55 times, more than any other human in history. Um, you know, literally more than a year's worth of Time magazines. You know, he was he he was on the cover. Um, this is someone who, as you said, was on the national ticket five times. Um, something. Uh, tied only in the 20th century by FDR himself. And that this is uh, someone who uh, was just constantly torn between the, the light and the dark in his own psyche. Um, you know, he is someone who... Uh, was in some ways this incredible optimist. Um, I, I, you know, his daughters talk about how uh, he was a huge movie buff. And, and so he would just keep watching movies no matter how bad they would be, figuring, like, the movie has to get better. Like, and that was sort of the way that he went through life. Like, you know, th things are going to get better. He had this weird optimistic... Uh, uh, trait to him. Um, and, and in fact, uh, in a confusing way, really saw himself as a man of integrity um, and a man who stood by his word. Um, in the 1960 presidential election, which he, remember, narrowly loses to John F. Kennedy, um, in many ways, he lost because he had made this promise that he would campaign all across the country. And so spends the final days of the 1960 campaign barnstorming through the smallest, least relevant states in the country 
um, because as a man of his word, he felt he needed to make it to every state as part of his campaign. Um, when if he had just camped out in a couple of the battleground states, he probably actually could have won. Um, and he ultimately, though, is just never able to get out of his own way. That he, um, he, he in many ways uh, has the same psychology that we see uh, in our modern era with, with President Trump. He was sort of a perennial outsider. Um, who always felt that he had never been welcomed by the elite, um, that the people in you know fancy society were always laughing at him. And he had very few meaningful friends or human relationships outside of his family and uh, sort of believed wrongly that all of his enemies were always doing to him the things that he was doing to them. And so sort of was this self-propagating desire to do dirty tricks that permeates really every campaign he ever runs um, from Congress on up because he always felt you know that someone else was sticking it to him. Uh, and so he needed to give as good as he got, even though in many cases he was the only one doing the giving. Um, and so he uh, perceives as, as president that anyone who is trying to attack the country, um, you know, and this is the, you know, this is the late 60s. This is a time of great upheaval. This is the, you know, the peak of, um, you know, student protests and uh, domestic uh, bombing campaigns and the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers and uh, the anti-war movement. And so he sees sort of all of these people uh, who are uh, protesting the government as protesting him. And that, you know, he in his own mind sort of wraps up, uh, you know, anyone uh, who is an enemy of his is an enemy of national security. And that, again, encourages this dark and paranoid mindset that permeates uh, sort of all of the actions of his presidency. Garrett, as you ventured back into the history of Watergate, which may be the most exhaustively chronicled, uh, certainly political crime of American history, what was new to you? What did you learn that you didn't know? What source material did you find very illuminating that perhaps earlier chroniclers did not have access to? It's a great question, in part because you know this is a story that has been so uh, sliced and diced over so many years, and so many books, and so many government reports. But the truth of the matter is, actually, as I discovered, and part of the reason that led me to write this book in the first place is that no one has sat down in more than a quarter century to write the full soup to nuts story of Watergate as we now understand it with all of the additional history and revelations that have come about. Um, to just cite a few, um, no one had ever sat down and written a history of Watergate knowing the identity of Deep Throat, um, which is a single fact that dramatically changes the arc of the story and, and what we now understand uh, takes place. Uh, that Mark Felt, um, the deputy director of the FBI at the time, was leaking to Bob Woodward um, and, and other reporters, um, really actually changes the story in some big and important ways. Um, you know, the, this is the first history of Watergate to be written with full access to the Nixon tapes. Um, this is the first one written with the full revelations of the Chenault affair. Um, the first written uh, since the, um, the impeachment roadmap was declassified in the midst of actually Trump's first impeachment. Um, so there are all of these new details, all of these new important characters uh, and, and incidents and anecdotes that we now understand were important turning points in this history of Watergate 
that we uh, that that no one had really been able to place in their appropriate context uh, in, in telling the story of Watergate before. So that, that was my goal with this book was to sit down and take everything that had been, uh, uh, illuminated and learned over the last 50 years and tell it soup to nuts, start to finish in a way that actually hadn't been done in more than two and a half decades. And of those things that you mentioned, most notably the revelation of who Deep Throat was, uh, Mark felt, um, what new light, new understanding do you have now that you didn't have before? So I think that part of what really changes our understanding of what transpired in Watergate, uh, when you begin to understand the role of Mark felt, um, is that Mark Felt wasn't out to do anything to Richard Nixon. You know, we've sort of always had this idea that Deep Throat, this legendary uh, anonymous source, you know, the most famous anonymous source in American history, uh, made famous in the movie with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, uh, All the President's Men, about Woodward and Bernstein, that... Uh, that this was some sort of crusading uh, Nixon insider, you know, trying to make sure that the truth got out. And that's actually not what Mark Felt was trying to do at all. Um, Mark Felt was a loyal career FBI agent, um, uh, prickly, self-centered, uh, and had assumed that he was going to take over as director of the FBI upon the departure of J. Edgar Hoover, the founder of the Bureau who had led it for 50 years and who coincidentally died just six weeks before the Watergate burglary. And Nixon had, instead of promoting Mark Felt, uh, appointed a outsider named Patrick Gray as the acting director. And Mark felt hated that. He thought the job belonged to him. And so all of his leaks through that summer and fall um, are basically about trying to drive Pat Gray out of office and install himself as the acting director of the FBI. And so it, it, it really changes the way that we understand what was transpiring inside the Justice Department, inside the White House. Um, and you see some of, these, some of these fascinating moments where actually Mark Felt doesn't share with Bob Woodward uh, information that is damaging about Nixon because he he doesn't care about whether it damages Nixon. He cares whether the information damages Pat Gray. So did the FBI know, you know, in the versions, all the president's men, the movie version of this story, uh, Deep Throat is leaving very cryptic breadcrumbs. Look into this. You might find something there. Did the FBI actually know the full parameters of the criminality emanating from the White House? In many ways, yes. Um, and part of what makes, uh, that, that we sort of now understand is that while Woodward and Bernstein mattered and their reporting uh, at the Washington Post really did matter, it didn't matter in the way that we sort of thought it did. That in many ways, the information that they were publishing was already known to the FBI, that the FBI had already collected it, that they had already run down a lot of the sketchy uh, money trail uh, around the burglars. Um, and, and in fact, what actually uh, mattered about the work that Woodward and Bernstein did in the summer and fall of 72 was to keep the story alive publicly long enough for uh, other governmental institutions to begin to pick up the case. 
um, things like the government accounting office, things like uh, like Congress beginning to pick up the investigation and that the FBI was being actively stonewalled by the Justice Department, um, that Pat Gray was actively uh, stonewalling parts of the FBI investigation and that that um, all begins to collapse in the winter of 73. Um, but actually, it was a story by the Los Angeles Times in the in October 1972 that for the first time breaks the Watergate scandal wide open. Um, and two reporters there, um, Ron Ostro and Jack Nelson, get the first person story of uh, a guy named Al Baldwin, who is the lookout for the burglars at the Watergate uh, in June. Uh, had never spoken publicly. Most people didn't know that he existed at all. Um, and they publish this full page article in early October 1972 about Baldwin's first person story of being the lookout at the Watergate burglary. And that becomes the first thing that actually links the Nixon campaign directly to uh, the White House uh, and to the burglars. Um, and it's that story, um, a Los Angeles Times story, that actually in many ways breaks Watergate uh, or begins to tip Watergate from a political sideshow into the main event. Is there uh, an event that jumps out at you in the Watergate story that just strikes you as something that we didn't know or didn't pay enough attention to that actually is lies at the heart of the story? Well, certainly the Chenault affair becomes a really key uh, a part of that. Um, you know, that's a story that we didn't understand at all was unfolding a, a, a amid this larger set of uh, sort of crimes and corruption that was uh, at the heart of the Nixon presidency. I think to me... And, uh, and, and you, as you explain in your book, uh, Chenault had left uh, letters or documents that were sealed and gave them to the LBJ Presidential Library. And, um, well, you, you tell that story because it explains yeah. why it was not fully understood. Yeah, and, and so these uh, these documents were only relatively recently unsealed at the... LBJ Presidential Library that that really show some of these tr uh, phone call transcripts of, of what what Johnson knew, what um, what Nixon was doing, um, and, and how the U.S. had unraveled this scandal. Um, but I think to me the biggest takeaway is you know in, in many ways the most famous maxim to come out of Watergate is you know the the famous uh the cover up it, uh, the cover-up was worse than the crime um and yet the full history that we now understand of watergate in all of its context i'm not actually sure that that's true that in many ways the crimes were actually incredibly bad um that this was in many ways, the most corrupt and criminal presidency in uh, American history, at least until the Trump administration. And that, you know, this number one maxim of crisis communications, you know, it's the cover up, not the crime that gets you. Um, it actually turns out not to be true um, because Nixon's crimes were actually every bit as bad uh, and the cover-up in many ways was actually somewhat shambolic um, as it unfolds through 74, 73 and 74. You write, uh, and this is perhaps the most important reason to revisit uh, this story, that the scandal created modern Washington. And indeed, we see uh, the shadows and echoes of Watergate uh, now more than ever, particularly with the Trump uh, presidency and even some of the characters like Roger Stone, these kind of, uh, you know, the black bag job men. Um, well, talk about how what you see that is happening now 
that are the most significant echoes of that period and frankly how the dark forces that were kind of simmering and struggling to come to the surface under Nixon have now burst forth. Yeah, it's almost impossible to grasp just how much of our modern political life traces back to Richard Nixon and Watergate. Um, you know, the, almost every institution in Washington as it now exists is the direct result of the forces that were unleashed by Watergate. You know, the 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 sense of investigative journalism on the one hand, um, you know, the the headlines that we see still today in the battles over the January 6th investigation about executive privilege. The, it was Nixon and Watergate that actually first established and codified the existence of executive privilege in the first place. Um, the debate uh, right now that we are living through over this the future of the Supreme Court. Um, Nixon, in many ways, is the reason that the Supreme Court becomes politicized in the way that we now see it as. Um, he permanently resets the, uh, the liberal Supreme Court um, that had existed um, in the decades before, sort of ending the New Deal Supreme Court and bringing forth this much more conservative uh, Supreme Court that has existed basically ever since Nixon. And we see um, this in the way that the government treats surveillance, um, privacy, civil liberties, civil rights. Um, so many of these debates trace back directly to Richard Nixon and his legacy and the legal battles and investigations around Watergate that unfurled. Um, and, and, and not for nothing, you know, here in Vermont, um, you know, we are watching this year the departure of the last Watergate baby. Um, you know, Patrick Leahy was part of that famous uh, class of 1974 that saw almost 100 new members of Congress, uh, uh, many of them Democrats, rushed in. Uh, in the wake of Nixon's investigations, many of them, like uh, Pat Leahy, so young that the class was collectively known as the Watergate Babies. And it becomes this turning point between sort of the Congress of old and the Congress of new. Um, and uh, so much of the way that our country and uh, our, our government has changed in the last 50 years is because of the downstream effects of Watergate. And the the arc of that history, of course, is brought full circle when Patrick Leahy presides over the second impeachment of Donald Trump uh, as his swan song before exiting the national political stage. Um, interestingly to me is that, uh, you know, while we have you know, the things that Nixon feared and in fact did bring him down, which was the shadow of scandal, of perception, what it would mean for a president to be involved in this kind of skullduggery and to be exposed in the full view of the public. Now we just shrug. I mean, what? how do you make sense of the Trump era comes about where arguably far worse, you know, kinds of criminality, you know, bribe, you know, threatening foreign leaders, you know, to exchange in exchange for bringing down his political rival, Joe Biden, and on and on, are now, you know, the, the guy is impeached twice, and he's almost certainly going to run again. Yeah. Um, what I think changes is the political polarization of the United States, um, you know, to put it most simply, that um, in Nixon's age, um, what makes Watergate work, what makes Washington work is, uh, you know, I, I say in the book that I think in many ways Watergate is the most fascinating story ever told of how power uh, unfolds in Washington because no single institution, uh, the media, the Justice Department, the House, the Senate, 
uh, is able to force Richard Nixon from office. And instead, it's this incredibly complex relationship of checks and balances in the way that Article 1, Article 2, Article 3 of the Constitution all work together in concert to balance power in the Capitol that is required in order to force a corrupt and criminal president from office. And what you see is Congress act as an independent co-equal branch of government um, where people, uh, whether they're Democrat or Republican, um, you know, there are certainly Nixon backers in Congress um, in 73, 74, but that they see their role as policing the presidency um, and that they see themselves as protecting their own prerogatives as Congress um, in order to uh, maintain that balance of power with the executive branch. And so what you see is Republicans who put the country before their party. Um, and uh, In the whether, Watergate era. In the Watergate era. Um, whether that's Senator Lowell Weicker on the Irving Committee um, as it does its investigation or, or whether that's Barry Goldwater um, himself, who actually goes down and, uh, and tells Nixon it's time to resign um, in August 74. Um, the, the, the Republican Party sort of had a sense of outrage that uh, it w w was not in evidence in either of the Trump impeachments. Um, even even though, ironically, um, you know, the Trump impeachments were both bipartisan um, in, in a way that we've never actually seen in an impeachment before. Well, bipartisan by a hair. And by, we now, by a hair. And we now see the consequences for the Republicans who voted for impeachment. They are being hunted. Um, and, of course, at the moment, Liz Cheney um, and Adam Kinzinger are essentially have their heads on the on the block and uh, Trump is trying to make an example of anyone who would cross him which leads me to ask and that is the thing I think that I think uh, you know I remember when being subpoenaed by Congress sent a shudder up the spine of whoever whatever White House official was receiving that subpoena now they are routinely flouted they have no power have we learned anything from Watergate? It, it's an interesting question, and I've thought a lot about it over the last couple of weeks and months watching the January 6th commission unfold um, and, and thought about really how different we might remember history uh, if the Irvin Committee and the Rodino Committee, um, the two investigating bodies in the Watergate era, were stonewalled in the same way that they are being stonewalled right now as uh, the committee tries to investigate the January 6th insurrection. Um, and, it, it, you know, they, the Irvin Committee and Rodino um, had cooperative witnesses in, in many respects. You know, they had uh, the Irvin Committee in particular, you know, um, John Dean coming in and reading his 60,000 word uh, testimony, um, captivating America, you know, the, the first uh, real congressional oversight hearings, the congressional investigation of the president at the time, and uh, that America really was captivated by that um, in a way that uh, you actually saw public opinion shift in a way that I don't think would actually be possible today anymore. What lesson do you believe Americans should learn and do you hope they learn after reading your 700-page deep dive into the retelling this history? So I think there are a couple of things that stand out for me. One is uh, the courage that it takes for government to work well. Um, you know, part of what is so remarkable about this moment are the people who stand up to the president, um, President Nixon, um, uh, Archibald Cox, uh, Leon Jaworski, um, the, the two special prosecutors um, uh, at the time, 
um, the the people in Congress who take on the president uh, of their own party, um, Lowell Weicker, Barry Goldwater, and others, and understand, I think, in many ways also how delicate our government actually really is, that it is uh, that these institutions are human and they are made up of humans facing a lot of pressure and a lot of challenges. And so, you know, I think to a very large degree, um, the thing that I hope America uh, takes away from this book and this chapter is what it takes for our government to work well, um, what it takes for the interplay of all of the checks and balances in our democracy to keep our democracy safe and uncorrupt. How worried are you right now, both as a scholar of Watergate, but also as a contemporary, you know, chronicler of Washington politics? How worried are you right now that those checks and balances are being rendered moot and that we could be on the cusp of a anti-democratic, you know, moment, an authoritarian moment? Uh, I, I, I am so worried that I think what I would actually say is I think we are headed towards that moment, um, that, that, that future, the future of a more authoritarian, less democratic, uh, small d democratic uh, country is the more likely future we face unless uh, something major shifts in our politics and our country over the next two years. Um, you know, I think we are headed for a deeply grave crisis in our democracy. Uh, and it's not at all uh, clear to me that America has the uh, wherewithal or the courage to avoid that uh, future right now. Well, on that uh, dark note, um, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Garrett Graff, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Always great to talk to you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.